My mother, she froze to the ground. She couldn't move. She was trying to conceal her tears all the time, but I dare say now she was weeping. Next woche, next woche. Those are the last words I heard next week. And soon the train was out of the station and the journey, the long journey to England began. You might remember this heartbreaking story from the very beginning of episode one of this podcast. It's Otto Deutsch remembering his mother's parting words to him as his train pulled out of the station in Vienna in July 1939. When Otto arrived in Britain just shy of his 11th birthday, he settled in with a foster family in Northumberland. For a few years, he remembers letters arriving regularly from his parents. Well, not exactly proper letters, but very brief 25-word messages that were facilitated by the International Red Cross. As Otto remembers it, these messages always contained that same refrain, next week. Even as the weeks turned into months, then years. One day in 1943... Otto's Uncle Jim, that's what he called his foster father, received a different sort of notification and delivered the news to Otto. Uncle Jim called me into the front room. Now, in the northeast of England, the front room is not for general use. It's only for weddings, funerals, and when the vicar comes for cucumber sandwiches. But it was out of bounds generally. So calling me in the front room, I'd only been in the front. Mrs. Ferguson was a piano teacher. She had a piano in the front room. And I could hear Auntie Nell say, it didn't yet tell the lad. And Uncle Jim says, no, the lad's got to know. And he took me in. Not my cousin, just me. Henny. You'll have to be a canny lad. You'll have to be brave. And he had a letter from the Red Cross. Even during the war, the Red Cross was able to locate or at least give some idea of what is happening in certain cases, only in certain cases. And he told me, now, Henny, that's a term of endearment. You won't see your parents again. And they all expected me to burst into tears, but I couldn't. And Auntie Nell understood. Leave the lad alone. And then I cried my heart out. Because up to then, I had most, you know, when you're sort of 15, 16, you're not a child. Well, you are, but you think you're grown up. I had visions of going back to Austria to look for my parents, to look for daily, especially. Um, going to every camp. And by now we knew the war was going our way. That's the Allied way. And uh, I had high hopes I would find them. I knew this business about next week no longer. I held any 
reality for me. But I knew I was going to go back and do whatever I could. But not now. Well, that's when I really grew up. Those letters bearing the Red Cross imprint, a symbol of care and compassion amidst disaster and chaos, at first served to remind Otto that despite their separation, he still remained the child of Victor and Vilma Deutsch. Later, they would bring news to him that effectively ended that childhood. Otto's family, his parents, and his beloved sister had been murdered by the Nazis. Welcome to Kinder Transport, Remembering and Rethinking, a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. I'm your host, Alex Maws. On this podcast, we make use of the AJR's Refugee Voices Archive, video testimonies from more than 250 Jewish refugees of Nazism to shed light on one particular strand of the refugee experience, the Kinder Transport. You can learn more about the Refugee Voices Archive and find bonus content for each episode of this podcast at ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. Episode 9, 25 Words. When refugee children arrived in Britain, they weren't totally cut off from contact with their families at first. Historian Dr. Andrea Hamill from Aberystwyth University explains. Uh, well, initially, when the um, young children, the young refugees arrived in Britain, uh, many corresponded by letter with their parents. And often they uh, corresponded very uh, frequently. There might be, might have even been sort of uh, several letters a week. Um, it did obviously depend how old the children were and how well uh, they could write. That was the initial phase. Then... When the war broke out, this, of course, became almost impossible. There are some children who managed to f- further correspond with their parents, but that these letters then went via um, other countries, so outside, um, not, not in Britain and Germany. Sometimes they uh, went via other countries like Switzerland or uh, sort of more neutral countries. Or uh, then, of course, much later, even there were these red cross postcards and the Red Cross postcards, you had to be extremely uh, brief, and most of the time they were just reassuring each other that they were actually uh, well. This is exactly how Rudolf Goldberg remembers it. Uh, I mean, there were one or two letters before the war broke out. Then once the war started, they could only write via the Red Cross in, in, in Geneva. So what they used to get forms, you could write, write 12 or 25 words, that letter to go to Geneva, then from Geneva was packed, passed it back on to England. And, that, and then you only like perhaps, perhaps one letter a month or one letter two months. Like prisoners of war, really, you know. 25 words. What could a person really communicate about wartime life as a Jew under Nazi rule in 25 words? 
Andrea Hamill pointed out that many of the letters often contained reassurances that everything was okay. You can understand why a parent would want to say such things to their child, but of course, we know now, with the benefit of hindsight, that things were very much not okay. So perhaps, in a sense, what's significant about these communications is not what they did say, but what they didn't say. In the case of Rudolf Goldberg, what his last letter from his parents didn't say said everything. I sent a few messages, a few Red Cross letters to them, as they sent a few to me. Till one day I had a letter from them saying, we're going away tomorrow. Well, I mean, I, I, I didn't really know what it meant. I mean, just going away, going away. And that was the last that I ever had of them. And that's when they were being deported. A young child losing a parent, even in normal circumstances, can obviously be very traumatic. But here we have thousands of children separated from their parents, trying to adapt to their new circumstances in all kinds of ways. And many of them will eventually learn about the horrible deaths of not just one parent, but often both, along with siblings and other relatives and friends. I just can't imagine how they processed this. Here's Andrea Hamill again. Yeah, some of uh, the child refugees learned the parents' fate during uh, the war still, so sometimes they were informed of uh, the death of a parent during uh, the war, often uh, in these short Red Cross messages, which obviously was very traumatic for them. It then depended how their foster parents dealt uh, with with this trauma. So some foster parents tried to sort of downplay the significance. Sometimes the children were actually too young to fully understand what the death of a parent meant. But often this was obviously extremely traumatic uh, for the young children. It's important to remember that for many of the children, like Rudolf Goldberg, there was no one moment when they learned about the fate of their parents. For many, it wasn't a case of receiving a letter, but of communication just being cut off, leading only to questions, but no answers. For some period of time, the children may have held out hope. Then, when the war ended and there was still no word, they started to presume the worst. Listening to the testimonies, we hear so many people describing not a moment, but more of a process, a slow realization, a slow acceptance. Let's listen to Gertrude Murray, Henry Rednall, Ursula Gilbert, and Bernard Grunberg try to put it into words. From, from the Red Cross to say that, that my father, uh, nothing was heard about my father since he went to Auschwitz. That was the last I've heard. So it's obvious that he was, that he died there. Terrible. You know, it's a horrible feeling not, not to know how somebody, how much they suffered. And all that sort of thing. It's left a mark for the rest of my life, you know. A very nasty, nasty mark, which I shall never get over. I heard from 
Günther, the lad whose photograph I showed you, he told me that his parents and my father had been sent to Warsaw. And then um, my aunt told me he'd been sent. She was still in Germany. She told me he'd been sent to Treblinka. But as I've been told by several people in Treblinka, which was purely an extermination camp, they didn't let them live more than 24 hours. I don't know. Uh, I've never, a lot of them have had details of what happened. But as there were about 25, 26 of them, no, I didn't want the dirty details. And anyway, I couldn't do anything about it, could I? I um, pray for all my family by name every night. And more than that, I can't do. I know that everybody came and, you know, VE Day, you know, was something everybody was so happy and so, you know. That was the unhappiest days of my life, perhaps, because then I heard, you know, up to now I could hope and think, you know, perhaps one day I'll see them again. Well, you know, I haven't heard by then. I won't hear any more. That's the end of it, you know, end of hoping. Now you've come to terms with, you know, eventuality and, in, you know, this is the present I, in 1947, I think it was, either six or seven, I got a letter from the Red Cross out of the blue to say that my parents and sister had been deported to Riga in Latvia and nothing further had been heard of them. Well, I hadn't even heard of Riga. Had they said deported to Buchenwald or Dachau or Oranienburg or anything like that, I would have known that it meant a concentration camp. I had no idea what Riga meant or was, and I just put it off and thought to myself, oh, well, they'll turn up again someday and we'll all be reunited. That was the... the uh, that's how I accepted this uh, letter from Red Cross. From December 1938 to September 1939, when the parents of Otto, Rudolf, Gertrude, Henny, Ursula, Bernard, and thousands of others faced the decision to either keep their children under their protection or to send them off to a foreign country, they had no way of knowing about death camps, mass shootings, or ghettos. These didn't exist yet. But these parents' calculation that their sons and daughters would be safer anywhere but Germany and Austria sadly turned out to be all too prescient. But as we know, the Nazis didn't succeed at killing everyone that they sought to. Against all odds, Jews did manage to survive. Some of those parents who put their children onto kinder transport trains in the hope that they would one day be reunited actually lived to see that day. Some of those children who probably feared the worst ended up receiving improbably good news. One or both of their parents had survived. In the previous episode, we heard from Harry Weinberger, who enlisted in the British Army and served all around Europe. At the end of the war, he was stationed in Italy when he received word that his parents were alive in Switzerland. 
he got permission to travel to Zurich to meet them. And uh, my parents turned up, and I hadn't seen them since 1939. This was early 1945, so six years I hadn't seen them. And I'd remembered my father as a tall, blonde man, and my mother uh, very energetic, and there were these elderly people, very quiet, gray-haired men, not quite as tall as I'd imagined him. And they didn't ask me what I was doing in uniform, where I'd come from. We, we had a, it, it was a strange time, and I, I, we were sitting at, uh, uh, at a table in front of a restaurant, and I got my handkerchief out and I pulled a gun out and put it on the table. My mother's eyes were glued to the gun, and um, I was probably just showing off. And then I said, let's hire a boat. My parents said, yes. And we went on a lake. They must have thought me completely mad. When Harry says his parents must have thought him completely mad, he's echoing sentiments that we very often hear in the testimonies. Many parents hardly recognized their children, who had now spent so many of their formative years in a foreign country being cared for by other people. Often, the children had forgotten how to speak German, and they could barely communicate with their parents. Some were perfectly happy in their new lives and didn't particularly want to pick up where they had left off with their parents. For most, the reunions weren't able to happen for at least a few years after the war ended. It took that long. Fanny Bogdanoff was able to see her parents in Germany when she traveled to France for an educational exchange trip. But it wasn't as though their unique status as survivors and refugees came with any special privileges. Fanny had a 10-day visa, which she was not allowed to overstay. I then saw my parents for the first time in August 1947 for 10 days. And it was then that they told me something of what they went through. That's how I was able to tell you what they went through in, in the various camps. But they only told me a fraction of what they went through because they didn't want to distress me. It was an unbelievable joy to see them again for the first time. I hardly recognized them at first because they changed so completely. But it was wonderful seeing them again. But it was hard leaving them behind again and only being able to see them for 10 days. That was that was very hard, but that was all my visa was for, for 10 days. So that's all I could see them. Nine years after Ruth Jackson arrived at Liverpool Street Station on a kinder transport, she found herself back in that same place, this time awaiting the arrival of her mother, who had survived the war in hiding. My mother came, We arrived. she arrived at... Liverpool Street Station, and we went to meet her. And she was very, well, she didn't look so thin, but I thought she'd be very thin. 
because she'd got a, um, no, not this rug. She had a Persian rug round her middle. She was only allowed to bring what she could carry. So being my mother, she'd put the Persian rug round herself. She was very skinny. She sort of fastened it with safety pins. She put a, a lot of um, silver in her in the lining of her coat. And I think she must have rattled when she went along. I'm not sure, but it always amazes me the things that she did manage to bring over. But here I was with a mother that I couldn't converse with very easily. I hadn't seen for nine years. I'd left as a child, and I was now a married woman. It was a very odd situation. So what do we make of this? First, I suppose it's important to say that the end of the war was not the end of the story of the kinder transport. The repercussions of those fateful decisions made in 1938 and 1939 would be felt for years and years. Then there's this. The story of the kinder transport is almost always told as a story about children. Children put onto trains, arriving in a strange land, taken in by kind or sometimes not so kind strangers, adapting and contributing to their new home country. But where are the parents in this story? For almost every child that was put onto a train, there is a set of parents who agonized over that decision, who worried daily about their children, who tried to put on as brave a face as they could in those 25-word letters, and in many cases, who were eventually murdered. This episode focused ostensibly on written communication between parents and their children. Those letters serve as the link between the kinder transport, a story of children who were rescued from what we now know as the Holocaust, and the Holocaust itself. These two stories are inextricably connected. Just like all letters have both a sender and a recipient, you can't have one without the other. This podcast is a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. We are a charity supporting Holocaust refugees and survivors living in Great Britain. Learn more about our work at ajr.org.uk. Thanks to my colleague and Refugee Voices founding director, Dr. Bea Lefkowitz, and to Dr. Anthony Grenville for their support, and to Dr. Andrea Hamill for contributing to this episode. Miriam Silverman is our researcher, post-production by Ross Winter at Podcast Polishing. To learn more about the stories of the kinder transport refugees you heard from in this episode, please visit ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please help us spread the word about it, and we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a review if you can wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>